Welcome back to The Wrestling Room and welcome back to What Does the Bible Say? Episode number three, where we tackle your questions, open the Bible and see what God has to say about your questions. So Aaliyah from Boise, Idaho has sent in another great question. We're going to address that one today. But before we do, I want to read two quotes that will build a foundation for all we're going to teach. The first quote is by arguably the greatest scientific mind in all of world history who said this, all of our lauded technological progress is like an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. Wow. That was spoken by Albert Einstein over 50 years ago. And if it was true then, friends, it is dramatically true right now. Technolo technological progress, all of our technology, we believe it's done us so much good, he would say, and he would argue, and I would agree with him, it's like an axe in the hand of a pathological criminal. We are more unstable. Our world is more dangerous now than it's ever been. <laughs> now, Vance Havner, an old Baptist preacher, took it a whole nother level further. He said this, civilization is like a chimpanzee with a blowtorch in a room full of dynamite. Wow, that's graphic, but that is so true. Our world has never been more unstable, more ready to blow than it is today, and people know it. There's a sense inside of people as I talk to believers and non-believers alike, religious and non-religious alike, they know something's going down on the planet. And as a student of biblical prophecy, I can tell you with confidence we're living in the last sliver of time in world history as we know it. And so Aaliyah's question is very relevant. Here's what she asked. She said, if someone believes in Jesus at the last second, will they be taken? I believe what she's asking is, if someone gives their heart to Jesus, places their faith in Jesus, right at the last minute, will he take them with him to heaven? And so I want to tackle that question from five different angles with five biblical facts. And so here we go. Buckle up. Number one, right now, there is a door of opportunity. There is a gate that is open, a drawbridge to the castle that is down, allowing us the opportunity and allowing people the opportunity to put their faith in Jesus. But that door, that gate is about to close. It's about to close. There is a passage in the Old Testament, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, that speaks prophetically of two distinct and different periods of time, two distinct and different events, both of which are linked inextricably to Jesus. I'll describe them as two mountains, and I'm going to put a graphic on the screen in just a moment and walk you through it, but I want to read this passage of Scripture first, and then we'll dissect it a little bit. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, prophetically speaking of Jesus, reads this way. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to captives and freedom to prisoners. And here we are, the two events, to proclaim, number one, the favorable year of the Lord, and number two, the day of vengeance of our God. So let's tackle these two mountaintop events, the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. So I'm going to put the graphic on the screen. Let's walk through it. 
Jesus' first coming was like that first mountaintop event, if you will, where the gates were opened. In Luke 4.19, Jesus stands up in his hometown of Nazareth in the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he essentially says, the favorable year of the Lord is inaugurated. The gates are open, and his message to humanity is, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your sin. Rest from your guilt. Rest from your shame. Rest from this heavy burden that you're carrying. And during this favorable year of the Lord, this period of time, we call it the dispensation of grace, if you will. The gates are open for anyone to come into the city of refuge and to be saved and to be protected a time of security. The picture in the Old Testament is the time when the ark was being built and Noah was preaching for 120 years, come into the ark of safety, come into the ark of safety. There's a flood coming and people mocked him. People mocked him. People mocked him for 120 years. That is an Old Testament foreshadow of this favorable year of the Lord when the door is open, the gangplank is down to the ark of safety, and Jesus says, come, come, come. And so on the graphic, Jesus came as a baby. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He inaugurated this time of grace and favor. But friends, that time is coming to an end. You see the red arrow. It says, we are here. I believe we're right at the end. We're getting ready for a period of seven years. The Bible calls the Great Tribulation. I believe, as you see, that we will be snatched away, those of us who have already placed our faith in Jesus. But during that seven-year period of time, unlike any time in history of brutal tribulation, people will still have the opportunity to give their hearts to Jesus. But then at the end of that seven years, the gates will slam shut. Jesus will come a second time, friends, and the day of vengeance of our God will be inaugurated. The second great mountaintop experience, the second coming of Jesus. Here's what I, uh, Jeremiah 46 says about this in verse 10. He says, for this is the day of the Lord, the Lord of heaven's armies, a day of vengeance on his enemies. Now, somebody might say, wow, Russ, vengeance, that word uh, it just puts shivers down my spine. God is a God of vengeance? I thought he was a God of love. Friends, yes. God is a God of the most incomprehensible love that we can ever imagine. We can't comprehend. It's a love that sent his only beloved son to a cross to be slaughtered on our behalf, in your place, in my place. Great love. But God's love is also a love that rights wrongs and brings justice. Now listen, what kind of father, I want to give you an illustration, if you saw a man who allowed his older son to beat and brutalize and bully a younger son, allowed this older son, if you will, to disrespect and disobey and defy his wife, the, this, the son's mother, allowed people to walk onto the property, right into their house and vandalize and brutalize and abuse those in the house and did nothing, what kind of father would you think that man to be? Would you say, oh, he's such a father of love. He just allows anybody to come in and do anything they want. Would you see him as a God or a father of love? Absolutely not. You would see that man as despicable, as irresponsible, that parent needs a beating himself 
because he has disregarded and been irresponsible for those under his care, those under his leadership, for his, his children, for his bride. Friends, God is a God of unparalleled love, of incomprehensible love, but he, and he is offering that love to us right now. If you want the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, you may have it. It's the favorable day of the Lord. The gates are open. But if you refuse that love, if you ignore this call of Jesus to come to me, if you ignore it, then I say this with great love and respect, but dear friend, you are going to face the wrath of God. God is not just a God of love. He is a God of wrathful love, of just love. He is a God who defends his children. Listen, what 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 8 says. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the believers in Thessalonica who are being persecuted mercilessly because of their faith in Jesus. And he gives them this encouraging word. He says this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Wow! That, friends, describes the day of vengeance of our God. When Jesus will make all rights or all wrongs right, he will bring justice. He will turn the world right side up. Revelation 19 verses 14 through 16 graphically portrays this event. So number one, there is a gate that is open. A, a gangplank that is down or, or a drawbridge that is down, a window that, of opportunity that is open, but it's closing quickly. Number two, though, God is passionately pursuing lost sheep during this time where the gate is open. Now, C.S. Lewis introduced us to a term, the hound of heaven, describing his own journey to faith, where it was not so much him coming to God. In fact, it wasn't at all. It was God chasing after him like a hound after a fox, a pursuit. And he described God as pursuing him, pursuing him, pursuing him out of love, desiring to have him uh, as one of his children. And Luke 15, Jesus as it were, pulls back the curtain to reveal the grand and great and true heart of God the Father when he shares the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son, but particularly with the first two. He, per he portrays the heart of the Father as one that relentlessly, almost recklessly, pursues this one lost sheep through any and all circumstances, leaving the 99 alone, going out into the wilderness, going out into the weather, going out into the darkness, going out into danger to pursue the one who is lost. And when he finds him, puts him on his shoulders, brings him back, and there's a grand and great party. And he describes that as being the atmosphere of heaven, one raucous party after another, as another lost sheep is found, another lost sheep is found, a lost coin is found. 
in the parable of the lost coin, the woman who is portrayed, uh, the father is portrayed as a woman. She turns the house upside down to find one lost coin. When she does, she calls all the neighbors together, and there's a grand and great party celebrating the discovery of the lost coin. And this, friends, is the atmosphere of heaven, the great heart of God pursuing, 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 so different from the gross misrepresentation of God as one who is furiously and wrathfully grabbing filthy sinners and dangling them, dangling them over the, the flames of hell just before he diabolically with a cackle throws them into hell. No, that's not the heart of God. That is the heart that Satan would have you believe resides in our God, but our God's heart is great and grand and loving and kind and is pursuing, pursuing, pursuing. Another picture of the heart of God that many probably have never thought of is displayed in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. This is a powerful insight into the heart of God. It says that God is long-suffering. Let me read the verse to you. It says, in a context where people are saying, listen, we've heard for thousands of years that God is coming back, but he's not coming back. We just keep hearing that story over and over and over. And Peter says, they're mistaken. And in verse 9, Peter says this of 2 Peter chapter 3, says, the Lord is not slow or slack about his promise, as some would, would consider slackness, but he is patient or long-suffering toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This word long-suffering describes the heart of God the Father. Friends, listen, what does this word mean? It literally means to persevere patiently and bravely while enduring misfortune and trouble. It means to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others. It means to be slow to avenge, slow to punish, slow to anger. That is the heart of God. <laughs> what is going on here? Jesus... The Spirit of God and the Father are stretching the finish line out as far as they can, extending the net as deep and as wide as they can to bring more and more and more people. And every single day that he extends the finish line, his heart is suffering. He's enduring bravely the misfortune and trouble. He's patiently bearing the offenses and the injuries of others. Do you understand that every second of every minute of every hour of every day the heart of god has to endure child abuse abortion spousal abuse rape murder every kind of filth on the planet slavery god sees it all god experiences all god feels it all god is suffering many think that he just suffered when he sent his son to the cross and that Jesus suffered on the cross. No, friend, God suffers every single day. The easiest thing in the world for God to do would be to basically say, it's done, finished, I'm coming back. But every day he extends the finish line to bring in more and more sheep. His heart continues to suffer, to suffer, to suffer. He's long suffering, slow to avenge, slow to punish, slow to anger. So point number two, God is constantly, passionately pursuing lost sheep right till the moment the gate swings shut. Number three, though, there will be many 11th hour or last second believers 
who respond and squeeze in right before the gates close, right before the, 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 the drawbridge comes up. Now, we see this in the parable of the landowner and the five groups of employees in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1. So I want to read this to you. It's a fascinating story. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 7. It says this. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven, and he's given us an insight again into the heart of God and to how it is working. And here's what he says. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Of course, that's God the Father taught, being talked about there who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into the vineyard. And he went out about the third hour. So the day had already, had already begun, the work day had begun. Now the third hour he goes out and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to those, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. In other words, I'll pay you what's fair at the end of the day. So they went. That's the third hour. Then verse 5, again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, and he did the same. Verse 6, and about the eleventh hour, friends, there's one hour left in the workday. One hour left. He went out and found others standing and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you too go into the vineyard. At the 11th hour, one hour left in the workday. Friends, these are the 11th hour believers. Aaliyah, this answers your question. Will those get in at the last moment? You better believe they will because God is pursuing, pursuing right until the 11th hour. In fact, 11 hours and 59 minutes and 59 seconds. So the classic example of this 11th hour believer, of course, is the thief on the cross. Luke 23 and John chapter 19 Two thieves on either side of Jesus, both initially ridiculing Jesus, but one finally realized, this man is innocent. We're guilty. What are we doing? So he turns to Jesus, and in great repentance and penitence and, and sorrow over his sin and a realization that he was in the presence of royalty, of purity, he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus turns and says to him, truly I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. And in no more than a few hours later, Jesus and that thief on the cross reunited in paradise. <laughs> that man had no time to live a good life, to tithe, to go to church, to do anything else. He just repented of his sin, placed his faith in Jesus, and boom, three hours later, roughly, he was with Jesus in paradise. Eleventh hour. 11th hour. And friends, when, when the great tribulation, that last seven years comes, there are going to be many who realize we missed, we missed the snatching away of the believers and what is called the rapture. And our neighbors who knew Jesus were telling us about this and we wouldn't listen. We thought that it was, it was ridiculous, but now it's happened. And now the things they told us were, were going to happen are happening. We're seeing it. And in that last seven years, the Bible tells in the book of Revelation that millions upon millions of people will give their hearts to Jesus just at the 11th hour. So here's an exhortation I have for you. Listen, keep sowing seed. Keep telling people about Jesus. Be bold. 
Let them know the world is coming to an end. The Bible talks about this in graphic detail. We're living in it right now. Jesus is coming back. You need to get right with God. Here are the things that are going to happen. If you don't get right with God, here's what's coming because they will remember those things. And if they don't receive him now during that seven years of incredible tribulation, they will say, my neighbor was right. My relative was right. My spouse was right. My parent was right. I need to give my heart to Jesus. Just keep telling people about Jesus. So number three, there will be many who squeeze in right at the 11th hour. But number four, Jesus implores his followers to join him in this passionate pursuit of lost sheep. He implores us, follow me, join me in this pursuit. He commissions us to go into the highways and byways, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, compelling people to come in. Over in Luke 14, verse 23, here's what Jesus says. He says this. He said, go out into the highway and along the hedges. In other words, beat the bushes, go everywhere you can and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. This word compel literally has the, the sense of herding sheep, herding cattle. It means to drive together, to force, to urge forcefully with great pressure. This is the word Jesus used when, when commissioning his disciples to go gather those who yet had not come into the Father's house. It was a picture of a house being on fire. In fact, that word compel comes from a root word that means to literally grab somebody in your arms. I saw a video lately, uh, just not long ago on YouTube, of a man whose house was on fire, and there's just this wall of flames, and the, the firefighters are trying to put out the fire, and obviously he realizes that his dog is still in the house. So when the firefighters are not uh, fully paying attention, he bolts past them through this wall of flames into his house, finds his dog huddled underneath the toilet, grabs that dog and runs back out of the house, back through the wall of flames and saves the dog. I'll put the picture on the screen for you of this dog. Friends, that is the word that Jesus uses. That is the action he's describing when he says, you go out into the highways, you go out into the byways, you go into your work, you go into your neighborhood, you go into your family gatherings, you go wherever you can and grab people and pull them out of the burning house. This world is like the Titanic. We're not going to save it. It's going down. We got to get people into the lifeboats. That is our mission. And Jesus is saying, get as many into the lifeboats as possible. I heard a story some time ago about Pastor Adrian Rogers who befriended a man who was not a believer. And this man had season tickets to many sporting events around the city of Memphis, Tennessee, and it would, would invite Adrian to come with him. And they developed a very, very nice friendship. But Adrian would consistently and constantly broach the topic of this man's need for Jesus. And finally, one day, the man said respectfully, but quite persistently, please don't talk to me about Jesus anymore. So Adrian said to that man, I will respect your request, but you need to know that I will be praying relentlessly for you to give your heart to Jesus. Well, some years later, that man was in the hospital, and guess who he called? He called Adrian, and Adrian came and led that man to the Lord Jesus. 
compelling, compel them to come in, Jesus said. So point number four is this, that he calls us, he implores us to join him in this passionate pursuit. And if they say, don't talk to me, well, you can tell them, well, I will, I will re, I'll re, re, respect that request, but I will be praying relentlessly for you to come to know the Lord Jesus, the most important thing you can possibly ever, ever do. But number five, friends, the call to repent today is urgent, is urgent. And I want to talk to two people as I close this teaching. And that is the person, number one, the one who is playing repentance roulette, playing spiritual musical musical chairs. That person might be saying, listen, I'm good with Jesus. I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I just don't really want to follow him right now. I don't, I'm not really excited about following him right now. I want to have some fun. I want to see what the world has to offer. I don't want to miss out on anything. Yeah, I'll get serious about Jesus later. Just before he comes back, after I've gotten all these wild oats out of my system. And there are so many people with something of that mindset that are calling themselves followers of Jesus. Friends, Paul said of Demas, who was one of his right-hand men in 2 Timothy, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. That's the kind of person we're talking about. They love the world. They're, they've got this, this, the glitter of the world, the fool's gold of the world has a hold on their heart. And so I want to tell you, here's the reality about you if you fit that category or if you know someone who does. James 4.4 4 says this, friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God. Listen to what James 4.4 4 says. James is imploring the believers. And he says, you adulterers and adulteresses. Those are people who are grossly unfaithful to someone they've made a covenant with. That is what we've made with God in our salvation, with, with our faith. It's a covenant between us and God. And he says, you adulterers and adulteresses, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you hostile towards God? Then he says, I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. So interesting to me that he has to repeat himself because it's probably shocking for people to hear that. Because what they're saying is, listen, no, I'm just kind of backslidden. I'm not real on fire for God, not real close to God right now. And, and James would say, no, 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 you got it wrong. <laughs> You're an enemy of God. I want you to hear this clearly. If you love the world, if you have an affinity for the world, <laughs> if you have a fondness for things of the world, the music of the world, the things of the world, the comforts of the world, the philosophies of the world. If you're comfortable in this world, you're an enemy of God. You're an enemy of God. That word hostility means to exhibit the behavior of an enemy. It means to be antagonistic, to be resistant, even hating the person that you're hostile to. Friends, listen. The scripture says you're either for Jesus or you're against Jesus. There's no middle ground. If you have an affinity for this world, you have made yourself hostile to God. You've made yourself an enemy of Jesus. So for the person who is saying, I'll just wait. I'll slip in at the last minute just before Jesus comes back. I'll get my heart right with God. Friends, I want to tell you, you're an enemy of God. The Bible says it clearly. You need to repent. You need to get your heart right and begin to serve this one that you say with your words that you love. Words are cheap. 
Actions speak much louder. Do you love Jesus? Are you for him or are you against him? Make a choice. Take a stand one way or the other, but don't play this game of I'm just not really walking with Jesus right now. No, that means you're an enemy. Love him or leave him. There's no middle ground. Number two, the person that says, I'm good right now. My life is very good. Life is going well. I don't really need Jesus right now. I'm not really thinking much about Jesus. Here's the reality for you. You are one heartbeat away from being face to face with Jesus. Listen to Luke chapter six, uh, Luke chapter 12. This is a story that Jesus told of the rich fool, the rich fool. Here's what he said. He said, the land of a certain rich man was very productive And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And then I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Your 401k is bursting at the seams. Your investments are doing well. You can retire in luxury. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And here's what God says to that person who says, I'm all good. It's all good. Life is going well. He says this, you fool. You fool. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Friends, here's the reality. You are one heartbeat away from being face-to-face with the Lord Jesus. One heartbeat away. You have no assurance whatsoever that you will get another hour much less days or years. So friends, the, the, the command to you and me is Hebrews 3, 12 through 15, and I'll end with this scripture. The command is to repent today. Get right with God. Confess your sin. Give your heart to King Jesus. Here's what he says, the writer of Hebrews, to those who are professing believers, and I would say to anybody who isn't, this word is for you as well. He says, be careful then. Dear brothers and sisters, make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it is still today. In other words, while the gate is still open, while the drawbridge is still down, that is today. That is the favorable year of the Lord. So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. Friends, listen. Hearts must be kept soft towards God. Sin must be repented of, or else your heart becomes hard towards God. And he goes on to say, for if we are faithful to the end, in other words, not just having a religious experience, not just praying some little prayer some years ago, if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, then we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what scripture says, today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So friends, you're hearing his voice right now as I speak. If you're walking with Jesus, then I say keep walking strong, keep loving him, keep pursuing him. 
Stay loyal to the Lord Jesus. He's coming back. If you're playing repentance roulette, I'll just slip in at the end, not really walking with God. You're an enemy. You need to repent. You need to repent of your hostility towards God. Your lukewarmness makes you an enemy. Repent. Get right with God. Begin to serve Jesus. If you don't know him at all, right now, the voice of Jesus is saying, come unto me, all you who, are lab all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you. He will give you a brand new start, brand new life, and eternal life beyond that with him. So friends, will those who give their hearts to Jesus right at the last minute be taken? You better believe they will. But you've got to give your heart to him. And the door is closing. So do it now. Do it now. He's calling you. Come to him. I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining me today on The Wrestling Room. I hope this was meaningful. If you believe it would speak to someone else, feel free to forward it to somebody. We'll see you next time on The Wrestling Room. God bless your week. Hi friends, Russ here again, and I wanted to let you know that Catalyst Ministries and The Wrestling Room is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. So if you'd like to support this ministry, you are welcome to click on the link just below in the comments section, or you can go to my YouTube homepage, The Wrestling Room, and click on the button, Support This Ministry. Thank you so much, and God bless you guys.